Katie McCaffrey is a distributed systems engineer at Twitter and will be speaking at the upcoming QCon San Francisco. Katie, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. A year ago, you gave a talk about your experience building Halo 4, which is a multiplayer first-person shooter. A multiplayer game is a great example of a distributed system. What services did you build for Halo 4? Yeah, so um, I worked as a software engineer on Halo 4 for 343 Industries, which is the studio that Microsoft spun up to take over the the like the Halo franchise when Bungie decided to move on. Um, so uh, the Halo services had their or had the previous Halo games had a set of services like um, presence and showing you your statistics online and things like that. And then in addition, the Xbox ecosystem also has its own set of services that any game developer can use. So that's matchmaking. Um, they actually have their own present system, which is a little, which is not, a, doesn't provide as much information as the Halo 1, so we had our own um, and other things like that. So then for Halo 4, we went and rewrote the services to be totally cloud-based in Azure. Um, we used a Microsoft research project called Orleans, and um, there's sort of, uh, I think, six-ish main ones we built. We built a present service, which told you what you were you and your friends were doing right now, so that was, like, frequently updated. Um, and it allowed you to join games in progress. Uh, we had the statistics service, which basically told you everything you had ever done in the Halo universe. This was basically like the ESPN drill down. We had pretty much everything from like how many games you won and what maps you played on to I am this accurate with this particular gun um, on this map. So like you could totally dive deep into all of your statistics. Um, and this also kept track of like your personal information as a player, like what armor you had equipped, um, you know, what medals and things you had earned, stuff like that. Uh, there was a user-generated service content. So in Halo, you can there's a map editor, and you can make your own games and your own maps, and you can upload them and share them with your friends. And this is super popular. Um, so there was a service that, like, dealt with that content. There was what we called a title file service. So this was uh, dealt with sort of static-ish content. So that was, like, we could send push down messages of the day. So, like, Halo 4 launched on Election Day in the U.S. in 2012. And so that was a presidential election as well. And so we put put up a message when you popped in the game, was which was like, hey, if you're like over 18, please go vote and then play Halo. Um, and then it also allowed us to do things like we, when we ran tournaments, we could tell people that and our community team used this. It also allowed us to update our playlists sort of on the fly, which was done like every one or two weeks. And that was different maps and modes that you could play together so that it felt like a fresh experience every time you were coming in. Um, and then... We had a couple other things going on in the background, like we had our own uh, way to sort of like authenticate, or we had a cheating and detection service, so that um, analyzed what was coming from the game in real time, uh, and then would push bans back down to the game in real time. So we could detect everything from like, you modded your console, and then we would push a console ban down for our game, and then also notify Xbox Live, so that they could also ban you for all of those games, uh, from playing any game, because you you shouldn't be playing on a modded console it's like not fair and then um, we could also detect like hey you're a lot of people are muting you because you're probably being a jerk on your microphone so like maybe we should just not let you talk to anyone else and then you can still play but no one else could hear you so that was like a mic ban so i want to talk about the cheating and banning service what was involved yeah. in building that yeah, uh, so there's a service that was sort of that didn't actually use Orleans, um, but we used a we used a complex event processing engine called uh, Stream Insights, I believe it was called, that came out came out of Microsoft. It's originally built on top of SQL, 
And the idea here is that and it's it's like most um, CEP engine processing things where you have you sign a set of rules and you can run queries over Windows and then upload new rules. And so what we would do is we got data from a bunch of different sources from the game, um, statistics, presence. Um, like the game even had an endpoint that it would send us when it thought you were cheating, but that data was super unreliable and very spammy. So we actually stopped using it at one point. Um, and we would filter all of these events of what was happening because all of these events were unlikely to be doctored, even if you were running a modded console um, through the system. And then if, you know, this ran over um, minutes, hours, days, like I think the longest thing we detected was like a behavior pattern over a week. And we would say, we would then like aggregate what you were doing and then if you we detected that you were doing something wrong then we would push we would push a ban out of the service that would fire an event back down to like the statistics service which would store it durably and then push it down to as a game so the challenging thing here especially because it ran for multiple um like minutes days weeks was that um, you have this problem that like I'm aggregating things on the fly, right? So what happens if that machine goes down? I lose all of my state that I've aggregated on this machine about like your behavior as a player. Um, and so there's basically like two ways you can solve this. You can either persist the data to disk and given the tool that we were using that was like internal Microsoft technology didn't allow you to do this. So that wasn't an option for us. Um, and we didn't have time to go in and modify their code. Uh, or you can do replay, right? And if you do replay, that's really nice. Then you have like redundant systems running. Um, as long as all of your your events are idempotent and you can detect um, replay and your bans are idempotent in the sense of like if I push a ban and then I push another ban, it doesn't ban you for like twice the period of time. It just bans you for the, the period of time that we want you to be banned for, then it's okay. So we did that. We basically were able to say like do de dedupe our events that were sent into the system because everything had a unique timestamp that came from um, that came from like your console and so that was okay like we weren't super worried about using wall clocks there because it's not like super concurrent because it's all coming from your box so anything within a reasonable period of time was fine um, and then and then we also were able to run mul because of, we were able to scale this out. It was pretty performant. We were able to run multiple of these in parallel. So if one of them went down, um, we were still we didn't have to like lose all of the data from the past week. Right. So so I want to get into eventually we'll get into the Orleans model and the actor model um, for how you uh, architected some other systems. But you wrote a really interesting blog post about this cheating and banning service and what happened when you launched it. So when Halo 4 launched initially, one of the cheating and banning services APIs hit an abnormally high failure rate. What was happening to cause that high failure rate? Yeah, so the cheating, so the game development cycle is um, you're on a very short time frame, right? And everyone has different priorities. So I like to caveat this story with. Um, so the cheating and banning service sort of came in last because when you prioritize stuff like matchmaking and storing your statistics is like more important than detecting cheaters. But we got it all in before launch. It was just like not as well tested um, from the, the game to co like service interaction side. So there was a the game would try and do some stuff to think detect that you had modded your console like the co the code running on the disk in your Xbox. So this is kind of unreliable anyway because if you've modded your console in theory you could also like circumvent this endpoint from firing so like not super reliable um, whereas if you mod your stats then like you lose all of your statistics because we had a format where we could detect that you had done anything to them. So um 
so what had happened is when we were planning this service and out and doing capacity planning, essentially, uh, the, the game had said, oh, we're going to call you like, you know, I don't have a, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but they were like, we're going to call you like have this many RPS, right? Per second, send you this many requests. And we're like, cool. So we like allocated that much space to store all of these like what we called cheat flags coming in of what the game had said that you were cheating. The problem was is there was actually a bug in the code where the game was detecting people cheating at like everyone was cheating, right? Like and so they were calling like literally everyone in Halo the game thought was cheating. And so it was sending us like an abnormally high, like an order of magnitude larger request per second than we had capacity planned for. And there's like really nothing you can do at that point except either add more capacity or like turn it off. Yeah, you described it as a self-inflicted denial of service attack. Yeah, so they were essentially, and it, this is this endpoint happened to also be on the statistics service endpoint, and that service is like really mission critical because if you can't talk to that service um, in Halo Four, you couldn't play because you had to be able to like get your statistics and stuff like that. So if that service was down, like all bets were off, you so, were not going to be so able to play. So you're, you're saying that this failure propagated to another uh, more important service. Well, it, it was like, it's an API running on the same service as like all of the statistics APIs. And so as soon as we detected the spike and started to see things going wrong, because we had a really like um, sort of like war room on call thing going on for Halo 4 launch where people were in round the clock and shifts, because it's just like you're going from like zero to like a really large number of concurrent users, like crazy things are going to happen. So we detected this via monitoring and saw that like, hey, like we're getting an abnormally large number of like fit, like requests on this API, like things are failing. We're starting to see some latency in the rest of the system because it's it's, it's co-located on the box with these uh, with the other service or with the statistics service. Um, maybe we should we were just like let's just turn it off right and we also saw like a couple people get banned and we're like that's weird like i don't think they should have gotten banned Mm. so we like went and revoked those bans and then we um like turn we just turned the api off we had a we had a flag that said via dynamic configuration so like no deploy was necessary we just updated values said on the fly um this api instead of actually running the code that we wrote to run it just return 200 and drop the data on the floor this is what you describe as a kill switch yeah, so we, we had, like, these kill switches essentially on every API where we could – we had a couple things we could do. We could essentially return any HTTP error code we wanted to because the problem – we chose to return 200 because the problem was is if you returned, like, a 500, um, like, because the service couldn't handle it, which is, is actually sort of what's happening, um, then the game would retry three times. And so that was just totally slamming us. And we had essentially blown through our IOPS budget on Azure Storage – for this particular API, and we didn't have the ability to shard because we didn't think we would have, like, capacity-wise, we were way, like, what we had expected was way, way under, right? And if this was actually working as, pro- as, as intended, like, we wouldn't have needed to. And so we didn't have a way to a- allocate extra storage, but we were able to just say, like, hey, ignore this data, captured some of the bad data, analyzed it, realized that there's no way that, like, everyone in the world was cheating and the game probably had a bug in it, and then just left this kill switch on like indefinitely what does this idea of kill switches say about distributed systems in general should you have your components well decoupled so that if a kill switch on any individual component is pulled your your other services should still function in some way should they have a mode that uh, assumes that the kill switch has been pulled and and, it, and things are still okay yeah, I mean, so this is, like, the idea of, like, graceful degradation, right? And there's no sort of, like, one magic answer. It's all trade-offs. 
So for Halo, we knew we had a plan going into launch where we were like, here are the things you need, the bare minimum you need the services to be doing for you to play Halo. And those were the APIs we protected at all costs. Um, and so, like, if the system started getting overwhelmed, if we were, like, undercapacitated, if whatever happened, we decided to cut off these, like, auxiliary features like cheating and banning. Like, we might not catch cheaters for a brief period of time. It's not like we publicly said we weren't doing that, so it wasn't like everyone was just like, woohoo, like, let's go cheat. Um, but you could still play Halo, and then we would figure, we would work to fix it. And so the goal was to keep the services up and key the, keep the core of the service running. Um, obviously there are going to be some things like you, if you, if you can't serve this API, like you couldn't throw a kill switch for instance on like the get your player, uh, there was an API that we called in between every game to say like sync up with like what your state was with what the service had. Um, like this is XP things like, and like armor states and medals and stuff had a, that it had been awarded because you earned, um, you earned things in game that affected gameplay. Like you could get new guns when you had gotten so much XP or whatever. And so we wanted to make sure that was in sync and had a check to say like, oh, you didn't just like play a game and then magically end up with like a million XP that you shouldn't have. So the server had like a checks and balance there. But if you couldn't talk to that endpoint, then you actually couldn't play anymore. So that endpoint always had to work. Um, so that's not an endpoint we could throw a kill switch on, right? Um, but I think I think these kill switches and random drops and back back offs like this, it's all sort of like to me, it's it fits in the model of back pressure, where you say I want my system to handle as much work as it possibly can, um, even and, and even if it's rejecting it, right? Like even if it could only serve fifty percent of the requests, at least it's serving fifty percent of the requests, right? As opposed to totally going down. So you you write in this blog post also. Quote, implicit assumptions are the killer of any distributed system. What do you mean by this quote? Yeah, so implicit assumptions to me are like, oh, this idea of like, I have an unbounded queue and I assume that that queue, that queue has some fixed length, right? And I'm assuming that, that I'm never going to hit that. So like you should make that assumption explicit and like put it somewhere in configuration or code that says we can take 100, like whatever, 100 messages, that's probably really low, but like we could take 100 messages and at that point then we'd start doing things like dropping data or applying back pressure or fire an alert and like get someone in here to like do something or reallocate more space. There's all these things that you can do, right? Basically, in, what I mean by this is in, in distributed systems, anytime you sort of like assume, like have an assumption that you're not directly calling out the trade-off that you're making, you're probably going to have a bad time because it's all about trade-offs, right? And and so I think people sometimes think that they can just like sort of get away with things or like they don't they don't realize that it's all about trade-offs. And if you don't make your assumptions explicit, then the people who are running your system or the developers who come in and have to maintain your system or even you because you like forgot what you did six months ago aren't going to remember that trade-off and explicitly why you made it. Yeah, and, and to, to quote you again, you say... Quote, truly robust, reliable services must plan for bad client behavior and explicitly enforce assumptions, end quote. So I like this idea of the uh, cha- moving from implicit assumptions to explicit assumptions. Um, so another thing you write about uh, in that post is game priorities are often, I'm sorry, client priorities are often very different than the services that they consume. Uh, and I think you were speaking specifically to games. What do you mean by the fact that client priorities are different than the services that they consume? 
Totally. And I think this actually applies to, like, honestly, anything that's not games. Like, even a different team has a different priority than you. So, like, our charter as, like, the Halo service was to all... We had these set of endpoints that, like, always had to be up. We wanted to store your statistics. We wanted to catch cheaters, things like that. We were very focused on, like, building a highly reliable distributed system and service. The game endpoints are doing, um, I mean, like, a lot of them are focused totally on graphics. Um, They're focused on gameplay and tuning and making sure that experience is as fun as possible. Um, They're focused on networking, um, connectivity between um, the peer-to-peer connections for how you actually send data over the game. And so they just, like, have a different set of features, even, maybe, that they're focused on. Um, So you can, like, even extend this to, for instance, um, so I work at Twitter now, and I'm doing, I work at an observability there, which provides visibility into the entire suite of uh, Twitter services. All of our all of our servers all over the you know in all of our data centers all over the world. So um, we have this like all of our all the Twitter developers use this API to send statistics to our service, and then we make them available via uh, monitoring and alerting. And they're not thinking about like oh if I write a you know way too many metrics like maybe that's going to cause a capacity problem or maybe that's going to overwhelm this endpoint that I'm hitting. That's not their concern. They actually like don't ever think about this, right? And so like it's our job as our service to make sure that we either rate limit them or throttle them or work with them to have the capacity that we need. Um, like, put those boundaries in to protect our system. Like, our system has explicit assumptions about, like, what will and will not break it, and it's not their job to worry about it. To them, their job is just to send us statistics, and they're working on making, like, you know, the Twitter app great, or, like, timeline service great, or the social graph great, or, like, whatever that team happens to be doing. Um, and, and they shouldn't have to worry about, you know, like, oh, am I writing too many metrics? Like, that's, that's our job to make sure that we can handle the metrics they send us. And if we can't, then, like, enforce the fact that we can't, right? Like, via quotas or rate limiting or whatever. I mean, even cloud providers do this, right? Like, once you hit your IOPS budget, they throttle you because they're like, you only ask for this much, so you don't get any more. And just for listeners who don't know, what is an IOPS budget? Um, it's like, a, this is a term that comes from Azure, so, but I, like Google and Amazon cloud have it, but it's just the, the IO throughput limit that you sign up for. And you basically like in Azure, I know for like, you basically have a limit that you get per instance. And if you go over that, like how many IO requests you're doing, then they'll like, they'll start rejecting your requests. Right. Got and it. so I believe, I believe Amazon and Google have some similar pricing model. It's just the idea that like, cause you're in a multi-tenant environment, right? So if like, I'm going to totally hose this box and like use all of the network bandwidth, like it shouldn't let me do that. Got it. So um, we, we should talk about Twitter more, but first I want to continue talking a little bit more about Halo 4. Sure. Um, you decided to use the actor model for some of the services that you wrote for Halo 4 and the actor model is a framework and basis for reasoning about concurrency. I actually talked to Jessica Kerr yesterday about um, J- JVM concurrency, and mm-hmm. uh, she was talking about using the actor model with uh, a number of uh, functional languages and the synergies between those. Could you describe the actor model in more detail? Um, so the actor model or like Orleans specifically? Actor model first. 
Okay, so the actor model is this idea. It helps you do concurrent computation. So this is actually a thing that came out of, like, research back in the 70s um, from the AI community, right? Like, distributed systems wasn't really even a research topic then. And so the idea that they wanted to do here is, like, the AI community was having really concurrent computation. So even if you had these huge boxes with tons of cores, like, you still ran into concurrency issues and, like, locks are a pain and slow and things like that. So they propose this solution of if you have an actor, it's like in an object-oriented programming model, you have an actor. It's a, an actor is the core fundamental component of computation, like an object in, is in object-oriented programming. So an actor is this thing, it can have some state, and it can like um, accept and receive messages. Um, and then it can do some work on its turn. So every time it gets a message, it's like a, you can think of it like as a mailbox with a queue, essentially. Every time it gets a message, it can do a couple things. It can create new actors, it can send uh, another message, or it can um, like modify its internal state. So essentially they're like little state machines. And they actually form these like little stateful units that run on services. And so this way you actually have no locks because um, typically there's only one message being processed by an actor at any given time. And so like you know that like, like you don't have to worry about concurrency issues there. And then they can modify their internal state without locks because there's only one message operating at any given time in the actor. And then they, they, they communicate via passing asynchronous messages. And so you don't have, um, you're not blocking threads. You don't have lock contention, stuff like that. So you used a Microsoft project called Orleans to build this mm -hmm. distributed actor architecture for Halo. What is Orleans? Yeah, so Orleans is this project that came out of the um, Extreme Computing Group at Microsoft Research. We found them back in, like, 2011. And so they had built this actor framework. So it was a programming model for building actors in C-sharp. And it was also a framework and runtime for running these actors in, like, large clusters. So one of the, the, one of the challenging things with actors in general is and in most frameworks is you have to know how to send messages to other actors which implies that you need to know where that actor physically lives um like so i have to like know what machine it's on or like know how to go to some lookup directory to tell me what machine it's on or like instantiate that actor myself and that's a lot of extra code and complexity to deal with as a developer. And now you're treading on ground of like crazy distributed systems problems of like, well, like there's latency in the network. And so if it was here when I first looked it up, is it still there? Did it die? Things like that. So Orlean sort of takes this mess of like where an actor lives and is it even activated um, and hides it from you as a developer and they bundle it into the runtime. So you as a developer just have to know and actors, uh, actors are strongly typed entities also in Orleans. That's different than like ACA, for instance. Um, so you ha just have to know the type of the object and, or the, the actor you want to talk to and you have to know its ID. So like in Halo, we had every, there was a player actor for every um, player in Halo. So that was like the type was player and the ID was like your ID, which happened to be like your Xbox Live assigned user ID. Um, and so this way, like if my actor wanted to talk to your actor, I just needed to know your ID and I could just send a message uh, to your actor. And then the Orleans runtime would grab that message and figure out where your actor lived in the cluster and then um, route the message that way for you. And so it did a bunch of things. Like it had, um, it managed the TCP connections between all the hosts in the cluster. It managed um, the, there was like a gossip-ish protocol that is how it did cluster membership. And then it used a distributed hash table to do all these lookups and activations and things like that. Got it. And you write that Orleans is a 
powerful tool to help implement the middle tier of a three-tiered architecture. What is a what is a three-tiered architecture? Yeah, so typically we talk about three-tiered architectures as like the separation of concerns. You have a front end, so that's like your web server that's like dealing with HTTP and, and requests like that. Uh, and then you have a middle tier, which typically has been the stateless middle tier. So you can just horizontally scale it out, right? And I can the front end can route to any of the middle tier, and sometimes it's route robin or sometimes it's load balance, however you choose to implement that. Um, and those are all stateless. And then you use like a database or a cache as your third tier, and that's where you store all the state that needs to be persisted. So in, in a traditional architecture, you'll get a request in, um, one, any one of the, the middle tier, stateless middle tier will handle it, and it'll ask the database for all of the information it needs to handle that request or a cache, for instance. And so like in Orleans, the difference is, is we put these actors in the middle tier. And so it's a little different because they're sort of stateful um, in the sense that like, and now like the front end has to do a little more work. Well, in Orleans, it doesn't because Orleans just does the routing for you. Um, but it just, it then it has to route the message that comes in for like my player grain to the box that my player grain lives on. But Orleans handles that for you. So it's not actually an extra code if you're using, using Orleans. Okay, I understand. Um, to describe the actor model in more detail to the listeners, and as well as the Orleans framework itself, could you talk through an example of a service that you wrote on Orleans? Sure. Um, so the statistics service is one of the larger ones that I was responsible for. Um, so this stored all of your data about you as a player, in addition to getting updates at the end of every game to say, like, this is how many kills, headshots, deaths, etc. Um, like, did I win this game? Things like that. And how many, how much XP I earned. So, um, so what would happen is when you booted up Halo, you would make a request to um, our services, the statistics service, to say, like, hey, what's my state? Like, what armor do I have equipped? How much XP do I have? What's all the persistent stuff? And it would reconcile what it had on disk with what it got returned from the service. So what would actually happen is it would go to um, our, fr our custom front end we wrote called the dispatcher. That was written in F-sharp. The dispatcher would then call an Orleans API, which would route it to our Orleans cluster and to my player grain, right? And then my player grain probably wasn't in memory at this point in time because I had just been offline for a long period of time. So Orleans would actually activate my player grain in memory. It would run some activation code, which was pretty minimal because you don't want activation to look like to be noticeable. Um, so it might hit the database once and load something, and then it would serve my request. So, and on my request, it might have to go to the database again and pull that data into memory since I hadn't been online. Nothing was cached. But then, after like um, after it's pulled that information, that basic player information about me into my grain from the database, that grain holds on to that information, and so it looks like it's like this tiny mini um, in-memory cache for me as a player on a box, right? And it's not deterministically placed in the cluster, but Orleans knows where I am. And so then the next time I make this request, it's super fast, right? Because it doesn't have to go to the database. It just reads the data that's already in memory. Um, and then conversely, when I would play a game or do something awesome in Halo and it would send an update to the stats service about what I did, um, then it would write to this grain. And so it would update the in-memory state of like, hey, you just got this medal. And then it would persist that information to the database so that it would persist after I would, would um, go offline. And then once that had persisted to the database and updated the in-memory cache, then it would come back to the service and say, okay, like it's done, right? So if it failed at any point in time, it could be replayed. All of these were um, idempotent as well. So we could replay anything, which was great. Um, 
And so then what was nice about this is the next time I asked for that medal, which was literally like the game probably asked for it like five seconds later, um, or like Halo Waypoint might if I had it running on my second screen device, it was already in memory and cache. And so the latency there was super fast. Um, and I also didn't have to, if I had to do something like update an aggregate statistic about me, like how many medals I had, I didn't have to go to the database first, get that information, pull it into memory, do like a read and then update the data and then write it. Right. I only do, we use them as write through caches. And so this was really nice because you had this property of data locality that you could take advantage of. Your track at QCon is called Taming Distributed Architecture. Yes. Why is distributed architecture hard to tame? <laughs> distributed architectures are hard to tame for many reasons. Um, part of it's just the scale we operate at, right? Um, part of it's because of like this idea of the cap theorem where you can't really have nice things. Um, <laughs> consistency, availability, and partition tolerance pick two, and you don't get to not pick partition tolerance because physics <laughs> um, and math. There's like a proof. It's like a thing you can prove. Um, and so, and so we're, we're constantly in this world of trade-offs, right? Of like, what am I giving up so that I can get this other thing? And so it's kind of frustrating in some sense because there's no magic silver bullet. Like there's not going to be any time in the history of the universe where we're like, this is the canonical way that you build a distributed system. And it's actually really interesting, right? Because you get to look at every business problem and think like, okay, like, let me define my business problem. Let me look at the space that I need to operate under. And then I, I go to my bag of like distributed system tricks and I'm like, what, what can I do here? Like, can I get idempotent messages? If I'm, I can do that, I'm like super rad. I can use replay and like the world is great. If I can, I kind of cry a little it because then my life is so much harder. Um, things like that. Can't Do I need a linearizably consistent system? Then I'm like, oh, that really sucks because I probably need to throw some Paxos or Zookeeper at it, um, which means I'm giving up availability in some cases. But there are cases where that has to happen. And so it's this world, and, and, and there's also a lot of really interesting research going on right now that I think is um, challenging our, or, or, or improving our lives and giving us more tricks, right? Like, um, there's all this stuff around like having more consistent um, distributed systems or like correct distributed systems without using coordination. And so if you cannot use coordination, this is the idea of like linearizability um, or serializability, but you can still build correct systems using like CRDT. Can you define coordination? Oh, sure. Co so coordination essentially means that um, multiple machines in your cluster or in your service have to d talk to each other to agree on something. So this is like the idea of uh, you're talking to your friends via text message and you're all trying to decide where to go to dinner. And like, like that's kind of difficult sometimes, right? Because you'll be like, oh, I want to go here. And then someone else will, like, it's all asynchronous, right? And so someone else will be like, oh, I, but I want to go to like, you know, ta tacos. And then I'll be like, but I want sushi. And then like, how do you decide when you're not all in the same room? Because there's this lag and this latency. And, and how like, is that avoidable according to new distributed systems research? So some of it's um, like some of it's like so uh, an instance where you need it, for instance, is like um, if I need a total ordering of events in a system coming from multiple clients, I have to have coordination because all of the machines in the system need to agree on what came first and what came second and what came third. Um, but if I don't need like a total order and if I can relax the constraint and say like I just need the set of things to be the same at the end. Like, um, like, then you can use tricks like CRDTs. So these are consistently replicated data types. So the idea here is that you can do writes to different machines, update different machines, and then there's a merge function that will sort of essentially 
resolve the 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 different differences in in the machines at some point and everyone will eventually agree on the exact same state and so typically this is done with sets but they're looking at different ways that you can also do this with other um with other data structures with other different types of operations okay this is great because i wanted to talk about crdts but let's zoom back real quick okay. first of all why do we want to replicate our data in a distributed system Sure. So we want to replicate our data in a distributed system because uh, basically for fault tolerance, if you lose a single machine and there's only one copy of that data and it happens to rise on, reside on that machine, then you're out of luck. That data is gone forever. Um, it's the same thing like in a normal world where we used to back up SQL databases, right? Like you might not have, you, ha you had a backup, so you could always restore the data. This is like a backup in real time. Right. And so what are the kinds of conflicts that arise with typical replication? So with typical replication, it depends on the, the kind you're using. Um, but the problem with, basically, the problem is, is if one of the machines in, in your replicated set takes a write, it has to notify all the other machines in the replicated set that it took the write. Um, and so it has to send a message. And you're going out over a wire, and there is you know, latency um, and uncertainty involved, and we're on an asynchronous network, so a message may get delayed, it may get there, it may never get there, things like that. Um, and so... It's because of this, your replica sets could be in a different state at a different time. Like one may have the right and the other two don't. Two of them may have the right and one doesn't because it got lost or just hasn't gotten it yet. Um, so this is like the whole idea of eventual consistency. So if you talk to like w any one of those members in the replica set, it may have a different view of the data. Got it. And with those things in mind, what are the problems that conflict-free replicated data types or CRDTs help solve? So CRDTs help solve the idea that um, I, so typically in a lot of replicated data sets, you will have either to write to all of the replicas or a quorum of the replicas or a primary node in the replica will handle the write and then it deals with fanning them out. Those are all different strategies of how to replicate. But in, in that world, um, in order to guarantee that this write was durably stored, it has to make it to at least like a quorum of the nodes. And so, um, like this is this is has latency in it, right? And it also involves multiple machines having to be available and being able to take that write at that point in time. With CRDTs, you can essentially write um, to any one of the nodes, and as long as it can eventually persist it to the other ones, then then it will merge. And it doesn't matter what order the right, like CRDT is really like, you still have to do the replication to ensure it's persisted durably, but it doesn't matter what order the right gets there in. So like, I don't have to, like if I'm doing a replica on node, or if I'm taking a right on node A, node the other node B and C in the set can also take these rights at the same time. And we don't have to like pipeline them in, in order to preserve the ordering. Do you have an example of, how a user might want to use a CRDT? Sure. So like the, um, I think one of the canonical examples they give is like a shopping cart on a website. So if I'm like, I do this all the time when I'm like sh online shopping, I open up multiple browsers because I'm like looking and comparing things. Then I'll decide I want both of them. Um, and then I'll add them to my cart on the different pages. But the different pages actually like, so like I have, uh, you know, a pair of Nike sneakers and one cart and a pair of like tights and another one. 
And then, um, and each page will show like one, but then when I, but when I check out, I really want there to be both of those things in my cart, right? Because I want to buy both of them. And for Nike, it's their best interest to show me both of them because then I might be like, oh, I don't really need both. Like if they only show me one, right? Um, And so what they do, like what you can do under the hood there is like these rights came from two different browsers. So to their service, it looks like it's coming from two different clients, even though it may happen to be on my same laptop. And so they just merge them. Like, so they just look at it and they say like, hey, like she probably wants both of these, right? Like the correct merge of those is just both. Um, and so it's like set edition. Um, co- consequently, like sometimes I've seen like this in, uh, in some places, some online sites do it, right? And some online sites do it in a weird way, but this is like the definition of a merge function. If I add the same pair of shoes to the same, to two different carts or like two different instances of my cart locally, sometimes it'll show two and sometimes it'll show one. I would think the right merge function is one, but maybe they want to show me too because they think I want to buy it twice but that's like up to you as an application developer um sort of with CRDTs to define like that that merge function but the idea here is is like I probably want both um not none or not just one I had a conversation with David Schwartz of Ripple and he said Mm -hmm. that distributed systems academic theory often fails to faithfully model the real world why do real-world production systems generate errors and failure modes that are so difficult to model theoretically? Yeah, so I think probably, I mean, I'm not uh, familiar with the context of this quote, but probably what this is getting at is that for a long time, uh, and there's a lot of academic distributed systems papers, and I find them all super valuable. Well, I can give you um, some context real quick. Oh, he's, sure. He's, he, he, Ripple is a uh, distributed payments protocol. It's like, how you you know you can pay bitcoin for you can translate bitcoin to dollars or something and so it's got this really complex consensus system and the academic research was just didn't uh account for the types of scenarios that happened to come up on the real world ripple payment system you know all types of bad actors and fraudulent types of events that can occur and untrusting actors and so yeah there's there's your context <laughs> cool so there, there's different kinds of so part of the, one of the, the fundamental things is there are different kinds of failure modes in distributed systems so like um you'll hear about like fail stop mode which essentially means i can detect when a, a service has failed like i know that a service has crashed or a box has crashed that doesn't actually happen in the real world there's no like magic light that tells you like this service is crashed right it could just be like the network is slow to it and it's not talking to you or it's like going through a garbage collection collection which is like a thing that happens in the real world right so there's that and so like this once you have to expand until like um you don't have to go all the way crazy into byzantine failures although those also certainly happen in the real world but if you come to me and tell me that like oh there's an error in your system because of a sunspot like i'm probably gonna be like "Mm, is it really because of a sunspot (laughs) or like did we just screw something else up the answer is probably we screwed something else up but there are sunspots and like there's actually recorded information of like this happening and proving that's correct or what has happened but typically we try to solve things for non-Byzantine failure cases because those are, like, really hard. Um, also, like, the, the World Academy, Academia previously lives in, and I think it's actually getting better because there's a lot of partnerships with industry and academic folks going on right now, um, comes from this, like, very controlled space where they think of it, right? And then they get to think about it really long. And then they get to write these formal proofs using, like, TLA Plus and Cock that, like, prove that your system is beautiful and correct. And they can take the time to do that. And then you, like, go and write a new microservice and deploy it into production, and it's, like, totally, like, screwed. Like, you have to write a whole new proof because things don't compose correctly. Like, that's not, like, a property we have. And so, like, this is why we sort of don't do it in industry. 
Um, and so like the time scale we operate on is uh, much faster. And we use all these really crappy networks in the cloud. And so we see failures much more often. And so sometimes these assumptions that are baked into academia actually don't translate. Um, I think also in the past there was this history of like, hey, we write um, academic papers and we release no code. Uh, and that was also like pretty disheartening because you would see this like proof and then you would be like, but I can't figure out how to implement it, right? Because there's something missing. Like they didn't translate the entire idea onto the paper so that someone could go implement it. So I'm like really encouraged by things like Raft um, and like lineage driven fault injection, which has its implementation Molly, um, all these things that are starting to come out and, and actually release code to like prove it a proof of concept. Like this at least works, right? Right. So speaking of distributed systems in practice, um, you are working at Twitter now. Um, one thing I read on your on your Twitter feed was a, you posted something about DevOps um, or like you know, your responsibilities doing DevOps. And uh, we did a week of shows on DevOps uh, on Software Engineering Daily recently. And I actually got several definitions of what DevOps is and the motivations for it. And it's it's a very gray area to me. Um, maybe you could talk some about your definition of DevOps and how that manifests at Twitter and if it has any collision with the discussion of distributed systems. Totally. So, I mean, I think DevOps is one of those kind of like you are you ask like 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers of what this is. Um, in the space I grew up in, in the games industry, we were 100% dev and 100% operations. We like didn't have th different roles. So I tend to be fairly hybrid in my approach. Um, at Twitter, we have um, SREs, so site reliability engineers, in, a different, in addition to software engineers. So we work together to help build things that like, can live and run in production. And then the SREs tend to focus a lot on more of the, like, uh, some of the infrastructure to help us run this code, like um, using Puppet or like whatever. Um, and then also like vetting our designs and making sure we're not doing something that's totally like seems legit from like a computer science approach, but like just doesn't scale in practice because of a variety of reasons and realities, like how we have our network set up or like whatever. So, so oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so, so is your, do you see there a close mapping between a DevOps engineer and a site reliability engineer? Yeah. I mean, I think the term at different companies is they're, they're kind of the same to me. Um, I know SRE is becoming like a common term. I've seen it a bunch of places like Google and um, Twitter and Dropbox and Fastly and a bunch of other startups. So maybe that's the term people are starting to adopt. You know what's so strange is there was uh, it was like half of the people that I talked to during DevOps week said that, and half of them <laughs> said that DevOps is this thing where it's like agile and you're like eliminating the boundary between business and engineering. And I was like, that's these are very different definitions. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've heard that latter one, or maybe I just like heard <laughs> I it know and right, it. but a lot of people I said that. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I really think like it's this idea, it's more of this idea of the transfership of ownership and running the code falls on the people who write it. And this is a shift away from like, the, like, I mean, pre-internet days where you used to literally stamp code onto a disk. And then I never as a developer would have to look at this ever again, because it's like not my problem, right? And then honestly, it was actually sometimes different teams that have to deal with the bugs and implement the patches to push out or whatever, or fix the next version. 
it's more of this idea of like, I take my code, I own launching, I own deploying it into production, I own monitoring it and alerting it and instrumenting it, and then I also own the maintenance of that service. So like if it goes down, I get paged, right? Or someone on my team does. And so the I think the overall goal is there's incentive to write better code. I don't know that that actually like works in theory. People say this, but I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, like you still have to know how to do it. But I do like DevOps and like teams doing their own DevOps from a distributed systems perspective, because I think the operation of distributed systems and the coding of a distributed systems are so interconnected intricately connected that there's like really no way that you can just like write some distributed systems code and like throw it over a wall to like someone and be like hey run this for me right like and I'm not gonna like help you when things fail because there are all these implicit baked in or, or explicit baked in assumptions and unless you write them down and encode them and like run them with those assumptions being known then your thing's totally gonna fail. Do you think there's a close correlation or causation between DevOps and the movement towards microservices? I mean, I think so, 100%. I, I mean, I think you do DevOps even with monoliths. Like, for instance, like Etsy runs a monolith and they have really amazing DevOps. Um, but I think with microservices, it makes a lot of sense because you have developers spinning up these services very quickly. And so, like, it doesn't scale out to have, like, one group maintain it. Um, especially since there's so much like local knowledge. Now, this sort of gets into the trade-off of like the the like I hope you don't get hit by a bus thing if you're the only one who knows how the service works and knows how to run it in production. So you need to do like good business practices and good DevOps practices of having like really good runbooks and test cases and things like that, like basic engineering principles that we're actually surprisingly terrible at as an industry as a whole. But like we can get better. I have I have faith. So this current week of episodes is about QCon. I'm going to be attending QCon San Francisco in November, and it's my first developer conference. Do you have any tips? Um, So I think, you know, a three-day conference is really fun but really long, and so, like, take breaks because it'll get exhausting. I think fine – I like to go and find a couple talks ahead of time that I, like, definitely want to go see and, like, mark them down. Um, but then also leave some space. So if you find like people who are talking about something interesting and you never thought about that talk, like then you can go and see it. Um, I think, you know, going to developer conferences, one of the, uh, the really amazing things besides the content there is just networking and getting to meet people, um, and chatting with them. Some of my favorite things about different conferences are honestly the hallway conversations or like what we call hallway track as a joke that happens. Um, because you get to hear people's like, people go on stage and you will talk about things and then, then you go out for a beer, or you you have a coffee afterwards, and you're talking about like what really happened in production, right? Like, and you get to hear. I mean, it's like we tell the story, but then you can't really sometimes like always go and publicly say like, well, I did something really stupid, and this is what we learned from it into the whole world. Um, and, and you do get to build those relationships uh, with other developers afterwards. Do you tend to walk away from these conferences like? seeing some disparate threads that you didn't anticipate being connected or like seeing new topics and trends develop? Yeah, I mean, I think they're really interesting to get a pulse on like what's going on in industry. I mean, I'm very much focused on distributed systems and infrastructure right now. 
And like, I don't do anything front end or making anything pretty. And you probably don't want me to because it would be very ugly. Um, but like, I like to go out and, and, you know, at least check out what's going on in that space. Or like, for instance, um, the whole, I like to go to a talk to just talks to sometimes see what people are talking about in industry. Um, like for instance, I have never used Docker in production. But I like, I mean, obviously, like, I've gotten a good sense of what's going on and that people are really excited about it and how it's helping improve their workflows because of these conferences. And those are super valuable because you sort of start going and seeing these patterns and trends over time. And then it may not be super applicable to what you're doing right now, but eventually it will come up. And it's a pattern that, like, there's, it's, if it's solving a problem, then you are probably going to run into that problem at one point in time. And then you at least have this um, idea in your brain of like how it solved the problem for them and what the trade-offs were so that when you need to solve that problem, you either have a solution or you decide this isn't right for me because of X, Y, Z. Software Engineering Daily is going to do a week of shows about women in tech in a couple weeks. Is this the type of thing that sounds good to you or does it sound counterproductive and maybe divisive to you? I mean, I think it depends on what the focus is. I think if you're there highlighting awesome things that women in tech are doing, I, like, fully support that. Um, it's obviously a very hot issue um, in the industry right now, and there, I 100%, you know, there aren't enough women in industry. I would like it there to be way more because it would be awesome. Um, Do you think the women in industry are, on the whole, underutilized and underappreciated? I think it depends, right? Like, there's no on – the, so on a whole, like, yeah, like – the group of women I know are generally like really amazing. And then I see a lot of young women come into industry and then get frustrated because it's not the most welcoming environment sometimes, um, depending on where you're at. So I think there's a lot of work we can do to just improve and make it more welcoming and diverse and inclusive for everyone. Yeah. I mean, part of my motivation for doing this is it's, it, I've seen, uh, some marginalization of women and it's just like damaging to the utility of like the overall utility of software engineering. And it's kind of like aggravating. And I'm just like, this is, it, it's literally idiotic the way that communication breaks down sometimes because of this marginalization. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's totally great when people go and focus and like make a concerted effort to like, you know, have, um, have diverse set of speakers, right? Like, even if it requires more footwork, because it pro honestly, it probably will, um, but it pays off because you get different perspectives. Or, like, because there's all these things that, like, where people don't try or they don't even realize they're doing it. Like, for instance, I don't know if you saw the New York Times fashion piece about Tumblr. I saw you post that. <laughs> so they, the New York Times wrote a fashion piece about Tumblr where they're talking about, like, tech chic. And they interview and take pictures of all of these people who work at Tumblr. And I think there was, like, I don't know, like, eight or ten people featured in the article. And they're all dudes. They're all dudes. And I'm, like, there are either literally zero women who work at Tumblr, which I know for a fact is not true. Um, or, like, the reporter just did a – was lazy and, like, didn't go and find one, right? But to, like, a woman in industry or especially a young woman in industry, because I mentor a bunch of people, it – you're not represented in that space of a very successful business, right? Um, in this industry that is actually about, they're talking about fashion and you're like, come on guys. <laughs> like this is typically a woman's domain. So like maybe have one in the article, um, like stuff like that. So I think it's really great when we take time out to like, at least like focus on what women are doing or like bring them to the, like give them um, some spotlight. What are your suggestions to me for how to execute the week properly with the right types of interview questions? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I always appreciate um, talking about focusing on the work that I'm doing because like I'm in this industry because I love the work that I'm doing and I want to talk about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if uh, like, that's like, that's a double bind, you know, that's why every, every interview, like every interview with a woman in tech that I've done in the past, like I don't talk about the women in tech issue because I'm actually more curious. I, I don't, like obviously, I care about that issue, but I'm also just a little more curious about the stuff that they're doing, and that occupies oxygen. sixty minutes worth of oxygen. So, and I think that's totally great. You know, I mean, I tend to like some of the most fun times I have are just talking about tech. Honestly, like talking about women in tech, I think is interesting. I like write uh, this little section. Well, I haven't done it in a while, but I started doing like uh, what I called like tech women crush Wednesday, like playing on the WCW hashtag on my blog where I was mostly just like researching women in tech who had done really cool things because it was inspiring to me to just see like women out there or like know about the women in history out there who um, had done really awesome things and, like, do exist and that maybe, like, we just haven't talked about in history as much. Like, um, I'm also reading Recoding, uh, what's it called? Recoding Gender. It's, like, uh, this book about all the early days of computer science and, like, women in computer science and, like, how they actually were incredibly present and, like, there and we just don't talk about it for whatever reason, right? Um, And I think just, you know... Why don't we? (laughs) I think it's just like we like hero culture. I think as an industry, I think, you know, this view of I don't I don't have a silver bullet answer, right? I think there are no, a lot I of think I remember like reading about some of these like types types of women and they, uh, they seem quite enough heroic. Like I I remember there's some picture I saw of like, you know, some woman that had done all this programming around getting a space shuttle and and it was just like pages and pages and pages of code that she had written. And I was like, that that seems heroic. Oh yeah, Margaret. That hit Margaret Hamilton photos. Like Margaret amazing, Hamilton. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I don't have a good answer for why we do that. I'm <laughs> sure like a sociologist could much better like and a, a anthropologist could much better answer this. Um, you know, I think it's a shame we don't. And I'm glad that there is a focus on at least like trying to surface this a little more now, and people seem to be supporting it to for the most part. Great. Okay, well, uh, Katie McCaffrey, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you and your talk at QCon. Great. Thank you for having me. I'll see you at QCon. Okay, I'll see you there. Thanks. All right, bye. Talk to you later.